Thanksgiving is to be a vital part of our prayer life. You know, sometimes I'll tell my children, okay, we're going to pray, but before we ask God for anything, we're going to thank Him for at least one thing. Sometimes I think we would do well to do what David did in Psalm 103, where the whole psalm is nothing but a psalm of thanksgiving. And one of the reasons so many of God's people today are so miserable is because we're so unthankful. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Hundreds of books have been written about it. The Bible tells us how to do it, and we know that we should do it. And yet for some, prayer seems to be the most difficult thing to do. As we continue our study of 1 Timothy, we come today to chapter 2, which begins with the Apostle Paul urging that prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for all kings, and for all in authority. Let's join Dr. Brogy now as we continue our study in 1 Timothy. I find it fascinating as I study the New Testament that the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, are described as an organism, but also as an organization. And forever, Christians have been going to one of two extremes. The church is alive, and so it is an organism. But it is also structured in such a way, or it should be, such that it is organized. Now, some are so organized that they have organized God the Holy Spirit out of the service. He has no part. It's man-made. It's structured according to the dictates of man, not according to the principles of God. Other churches at the other end of the spectrum put so much emphasis on, um, on the freedom of the Spirit that they've truly abused what the Bible means by that. And so emotionalism and experience has taken precedence over the authority of the Word of God. And it appears, as Paul writes to Timothy, he was dealing with such problems that some of the assemblies in Ephesus were disorderly. And so he gives some very clear and pointed instruction as to how the church should function. We must permit the Holy Spirit of God to have freedom, but even the Holy Spirit himself will not go against that which he has inspired in his word. And very often today, what people think is freedom of the Spirit in great and terrific worship is nothing more than the carnal ideas of some men. And eventually, when we function other than the realm that God has called us to function in according to Scripture, eventually that order becomes total disorder. And an organism that is disordered will die. And eventually, experience becomes supreme and God's Word takes a back seat and all kinds of heresies come in the front door. And so this morning I want to speak on the subject, the Christian worship and mission. But before we read our text, let me set it first in the context of this epistle. If you've read it over time and time again, you're going to see that this epistle basically uh, divides into three major sections. The very first section deals with the church and its members. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul instructs pastors and Timothy to be faithful to the Word of God and let that alone be our guide. He instructs us on how to pray. He speaks on the subject of leadership in the church. And he's going to speak specifically and directly to the roles that men and women are to play in leadership. We are going to deal in the next few weeks 
with one of the hottest issues in evangelicalism today, and that is what role can women play in the church? Can they be pastors? Can they be deacons? Can they be in leadership? And if so, in what capacity? And Paul will give us a very definitive answer as he addresses the church and its members. That's the first section. When you come to chapter 4, he moves to the church and its minister. And in this section, Paul will teach that a good minister will preach the word, that a godly minister will practice the word, and a growing minister will progress in his understanding and teaching of the word of God. And we're going to see that this chapter, though pointedly directed at pastors, is pregnant with principles for anyone who assumes leadership of any capacity in the body of Christ. Then when we come to chapters 5 and 6, he's going to address the subject of the church and its ministry. And he's going to help Timothy to understand that his ministry extends to every group in the church, that no one is to be ignored. His ministry is to be, old, to be to older men, to older women, to widows, to elders, to servants, to the rich and to the poor. And what a contrast this council is with the kind of thinking that so many have bought into today. You know, there are churches that are organized over reaching a certain segment of their society. They want to reach uh, baby boomers or baby busters or Generation X, and they say, that's our mission and that's what we're about. And they bought into a philosophy that is totally contrary to the way God has dictated the body of Christ to function. The pastor is to love and to serve all the people and all kinds of people, regardless of their age, profession, wealth, or status in life. And as a good shepherd, he is to guard them from false teachers. So that's how 1 Timothy divides. The church and its members, the church and its minister, and the church and its ministry. Or to put it otherwise, the focus of the first section is that we are to be wise. The focus of the second section is we are to be strong. And the focus of the third section are we are to be faithful. Now that's how chapter 2 fits in the overall outlay of the book. And it's important to understand that because if you can see the relationship of the parts, things will really come alive for you. But let's consider too how it fits in the immediate context. If you're with us in our last few weeks of study in this first chapter, we saw that Paul instructed Timothy to silence false teachers, those who taught a different doctrine. And where he saw that these false teachers had a uh, frivolous misuse of the law of God as they became enthralled in, in uh, endless uh, genealogies and in Jewish myths. And so Paul speaks of the right relationship of the law to the believer. But then he keys off of that by speaking of the glorious gospel that he mentions in verse 11. The gospel that is indeed good news of God's mercy and grace. And he concludes the chapter with giving a word of testimony that he, the chief of all sinners, if God could save him, he could save anyone. If God could save the chief of sinners who abounded in the grace of God, whose heart was overflowing in the love and the mercy and grace of God like a river that had overflowed its banks, if God could do that for him, he could do it for anyone. So as he comes to chapter 2, he spells out certain regulations as to the public order and worship of the church. Follow along in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline found there in the back of your bulletin, I want to suggest to you this morning five principles concerning prayer that represent the Christian's worship and mission. Five principles of prayer that speak to the order of the church. Five principles that deal with the worship and mission of the church. Principle number one, Paul addresses the priority of prayer. He begins by laying down his apostolic authority, but he goes beyond that. He urges them. You know, prayer is not something you can simply command. You have to appeal to the heart. And of course, you have to appeal to the heart with truth. And so that's how Paul does it. And beginning here in verse 1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now, the word translated here, I urge, is actually the very first word in the Greek New Testament. Paul is putting emphasis on that. He's laying down certain um, principles with the authority given to him by Christ as to how the church should worship. And as you read through this entire chapter, it's obvious that Paul is dealing with problems in public worship that they faced. Now, this focus, uh, the focus of this chapter is not dealing with your private devotions. It's not dealing with your Bible studies, though we're going to see that there are principles that would apply accordingly. But the focus is how the church should function when they come together in a worship service. And so he emphasizes the importance of prayer. First of all, then, he said, I urge. The King James renders this, I exhort, therefore, that first of all. Now, if you see that word then or therefore, a red flag ought to go off in your mind because Paul is referring back to something that he has said. Whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what is the therefore, therefore? He's saying, look, in light of what I've just said in chapter 1, where he twice over told Timothy to silence the false teachers, to fight the good fight. Now he's telling Timothy how to make this a reality. And this is where prayer comes in. Prayer takes something out of the realm of theory and theology, and it puts it into shoe leather. It puts the power of God behind the dictate of God. And so this phrase, first of all, does not necessarily speak to the amount of time that would be spent in a worship service in prayer, because we're going to see before we're done with the pastoral epistles that the principal focus of the worship is not even singing, not even prayer, but the proclamation of the word. But on the other hand, the proclamation of the word is empty and void and powerless without prayer. Where there is much prayer, there is much power. And so out of priority, first of all, when the church gathers of critical importance of what you should do, you should be involved in prayer. And it's sad to see how prayer, in a very slight and slighted way, has left many evangelical churches. You know what we just did in our pastoral prayer? One of my professors that I was recently dialoguing with from Dallas Seminary, he told me that it's almost gone from evangelical churches. They no longer have a pastoral prayer. And the Wednesday night worship service is becoming, fast becoming, 
a thing of the past. Tens of thousands of churches used to worship in the middle of the week and they had a dedicated service for the preaching and for the prayer of God's people. Now it's gone in so many churches. One pastor said, if I announce that we're going to have a potluck supper and a banquet, they'll come out of the woodwork. But if I announce we're going to have a prayer meeting, it's hard to even get the ushers there. Now, God wants his people to pray. The first duty of the church, among other things, is to pray. And it's only in the context and atmosphere of prayer that proclamation will ever be effective. And so our responsibility Godward supersedes our responsibility manward. That's the priority of prayer, principle number one. Now Paul gives us a second principle as it concerns the diversity of prayer. And he describes that diversity here in verse 1. Notice, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now the local church is a ministry on behalf of all men. And as we see this chapter unfold, we're going to see that the two, prayer and proclamation, proclamation are inseparable. And so to describe our ministry in prayer, Paul uses four different Greek words to help us to understand four different facets of prayer in the church. The very first word that he mentions here is entreaties. And it comes, the noun here comes from a verb that means literally to need. Prayer speaks of your needs. You know, it's okay to ask God for things. God wants to hear your needs. You have not because you ask not. Casting all of your cares, your concerns, your needs upon him because he loves you, he cares for you. So prayer, among other things, is expressing our need to God. Secondly, he uses the term prayers. Now, this is a rather interesting word in the original Greek New Testament because it carries the idea of sacredness. You know, one of the greatest thoughts, if you'll just let it get in your head, as I need to do sometimes, is that when I'm praying, I'm speaking to God. Think about that. You have an audience with the God of the universe when you pray. And so he uses this word that speaks of a sacredness, a, a reverence that we are to exercise when we come to God in prayer and express our needs and our wants. It's a word that expresses our worship, that we are coming reverently, not flippantly, to a holy God. Third, he uses the word petitions. The old King James translates it intercessions. And it's from a Greek word that carries the idea of someone putting a word into the ear of a superior on their behalf. And so when we intercede, when we make petition, we're putting a word in the ear of Almighty God on behalf of someone else. Be they saved or lost, we're interceding for someone other than ourselves, and we do it to God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then he mentions the term thanksgivings. It's the Greek word eucharistos. We get our word directly from it, eucharist in English. Prayer is not just an obligation. It is to be a joy and is to be made with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is to be a vital part of our prayer life. You know, sometimes I'll tell my children, okay, we're going to pray, but before we ask God for anything, we're going to thank him for at least one thing. Sometimes I think we would do well to do what David did in Psalm 103, where the whole psalm is nothing but a psalm of thanksgiving. And one of the reasons so many of God's people today are so miserable is because we're so unthankful. 
When Paul spoke of the peace of God that will garrison your heart, he said the secret and the key to that formula is prayer and supplications with thanksgiving. And so often we fail to thank God as we ought. We need to be a thankful people. When we thank God, even in difficult circumstances, we're saying, God, I trust you. I believe the promise of Romans 8, 28, that you are working all things together for my good to conform me to the image of Christ. Number one, there's the priority of prayer. Number two, Paul addresses the diversity of prayer. Number three, Paul goes on to describe the scope of prayer. Now, while prayer is diverse in character, it has a singular scope, namely it concerns all men. The focus of our prayer ought to be all men. And of course, all men here refers to all mankind. It's the Greek word anthropos. We get our word anthropology, men and women alike. And since all men are sinners, they need prayer on our behalf. And to be sure, Paul has not named all men since all men, in one sense, settles the issue. But he doesn't name specifically, at least not in this verse, those whom we ought to pray for, but certainly we ought to at least pray for those we know and those we know about. And we're going to see in just a few moments that the words all men is key to these seven verses. You might at some time want to go through and just circle every time the two words, all men, appear. Because it helps us to understand the church's worship and the church's mission. And I think that will become apparent to you as we move on. But these all men whom we are to pray for is to be all-inclusive, especially those he mentions in verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, our prayers are to be all-inclusive, not just for family members and friends, not just for other Christians. Certainly, the kings mentioned in verse 2 were not all Christian kings. So we're to pray for those that are lost and for those who are saved. All men excludes no person on earth because no person is excluded from the influence of believing prayer. Look, if it didn't do any good for God's people to pray, he wouldn't tell us to do it. But God's people are are able to make a difference. And of course, in this context, he's speaking of living men. Nowhere in the scripture does God ever command us to pray for the dead. Though millions of Americans two two days ago on the 1st of November, as they do every year on All Saints Day, pray for the dead. Now, God is very clear. It's appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. You're either forever in heaven or forever in hell. There's no in-between. There's no escape from either place. It's settled. And so God never tells us to pray for the dead, only for the living. We are to pray for the saved and for the unsaved. We are to pray for those who are far away and those who are near, those who are our friends and those who are our enemies, and to bring it down in the realm of rulership and authority to this Tuesday's election. After election day, if you are a Republican, you are to pray earnestly for those in authority who are Democrats. And if you are a Democrat, you are to pray earnestly for those who are Republicans. Now, I have to confess, when our last president was in office, I didn't have the same motivation that I should have taken from Scripture to pray for him as I did maybe for President Reagan, whom I heard his testimony in 1983, and I knew that he was a born-again Christian. Our last president, a professing Southern Baptist, has lived a wicked life. 
an immoral life. Twice over, he had a bill on his desk where he could have stopped partial birth abortion, where a baby is delivered feet first and then the skull is crushed that the brains might be sucked out and a dead baby might be delivered. Twice over, he had the opportunity to turn that over, but he did not. And at times, honestly, I've had trouble praying for our governor because he brought into our state a clear and concise violation of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. But I am still to pray for him. I am still to pray for him in light of the fact that the, in spite of the fact that the Charlotte Observer said that he would not vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. In spite of the fact that he blocked consideration of a 24-hour bill where a woman would have to think for 24 hours before she had an abortion. In spite of the fact that he failed to allow a bill to come to his desk that would give women information about the dangers of abortion and other alternatives to abortion. And fight in spite of the fact that he has helped participate in breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt mur not murder, I am still to pray for him. In fact, that's not a reason not to pray for him. As I think about it, that's all the more reason to pray for him. We are to pray for those in authority, pagan or Christian, saved or lost. We're to pray for those who are in authority within us. And when you pray for rulers, you're praying for their rule. And so I pray for our governor. And in the providence of God, the one time I'm walking my wife in 12 years through the waterfront park, who do I run into of all people? Our governor. Not with an entourage of people. Our governor and one other man. And we have the opportunity to speak for 10 minutes. And I have the opportunity to tell him that I'm praying for him and to respectfully tell him how I differ with him on some of these moral issues. God set that up. God in his providence allowed that. Now I believe God wants us to pray because prayer makes a difference. And remember that when he writes this, he is writing it when there is a corrupt government. Verse 2 informs us that we're to pray for kings and for all who are in authority. And by the way, Sometimes you ought to put some feet to those prayers and get out and vote. God has called us as Christians to be salt and light. And as salt, we are to rub it into a decaying, rotting society. And as light, we are to dispel darkness. And we have the opportunity in this republic to do that by voting our consciences. God has not called his people to live in a stained glass prison. He has called for our voice to be heard. And it's inconceivable to me that the God who instituted human government has then told his people to stay out of it. Now, some people say, well, politics are dirty. That's like saying to a doctor, germs, germs are dirty, so you shouldn't go into the hospital. No, we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And in our government, our Caesar is a government of the people, for the people, by the people. And for you not to vote is not to render to Caesar that which belongs to him. Now, it is a, a major problem it's a widespread problem in the church. I don't think it is in our church, but it is a sad truth that many of God's people aren't even registered to vote. It's not a matter of party. It's not a matter of persons. It's not a matter of policies. It's a matter of principle. And the fact that this country was founded on Bible-believing, God-fearing people. It's our responsibility to pray and to vote. And so he mentions here 
the priority of prayer, the diversity of prayer, the scope of prayer. But now he goes on to instruct Timothy as to the results of prayer. What are the eventual results of praying for all men? Well, we read further into verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The purpose of praying for these rulers, for those who are in authority, is that we, that is the church, the body of Christ, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, this is a remarkable admonition when you recall the fact that it was written around the early 60s when there was not a single Roman king or ruler who was a Christian. In fact, in this point in the Roman Empire's history, Christianity is illegal. And of course, Emperor Nero is in power when he writes this letter, who is incredibly hostile to the Christian faith. Persecution had already begun to break out spasmodically throughout the empire. But Paul nevertheless commands Christians to pray for those who are in authority. Now this is also a very important verse because it throws a great deal of light on the relationship between the government, between the state, and the church. You know, there are only three institutions that God ever established. The first, of course, was the family. The second was the state. And the third is the church. And the state's fundamental responsibility is to keep peace. And so we are to pray for kings and presidents and governors and senators. We are to pray for all who are in authority in order that we may live a tranquil and quiet life. We pray for the authorities, even the pagan and secular authorities, that they might be enabled by God to do that for which they were established. Now, it's interesting to me that when you read even the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, that incredible letter that he wrote to the exiles in Babylon, that he asked those believers to pray for the welfare of Babylon. He told them first, don't listen to those false prophets who's going to tell you that this is not for 70 years, that it's for a short time, that you're going to be released and go back to Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. God is going to do it just like he said. You're going to be in exile for 70 year long years in that pagan country. So he told them in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29 to build your houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And then he instructed them and seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and to pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Regardless of the society in which we live, God calls us to pray for the authorities within that society. For in the welfare of that secular power, the people of God will have welfare. Romans 13 tells us that government is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And tomorrow we'll look at why God established the state to bring law and order, and why God established the church to pray for the state. For a copy of today's message, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program 1TM3. You can also listen to it online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or using the Search the Scriptures app for Android and iOS devices. Search the Scriptures is a listener-supported ministry. 
We rely on your contributions to continue broadcasting on radio stations up and down the East Coast and around the world via the Internet. Won't you help support this teaching ministry? Just call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and ask about becoming a financial partner. And be sure to ask how you can get a copy of Dr. Brogy's apologetic booklet, How to Know the Bible is Really True. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478. Join us tomorrow as we continue our study in 1 Timothy and search the scriptures.